0: All right. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. We have a very special guest. Uh, I'm excited to have Mary Childs with us today. She is the author of The Bond King, a recent book she wrote over the course of, I think, eight years uh, researching the life and times of Bill Gross and PIMCO. Uh, She's also a co-host for NPR's Planet Money. Uh, Previously, she was at Barron's and the Financial Times and Bloomberg News. So Mary, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I want to dive right into this book. Um, For anyone who hasn't read it, uh, it's generated quite a bit of attention, uh, both for the depth and quality of the research and the writing, and also, I think, frankly, for the oh my gosh factor that a lot of people have when they when they read it. So why don't I? I'll be honest. Like when I picked it up. Um, I was very skeptical. I, uh, I'll be totally <laughs> honest. I, I did not plan to read the whole book. And so with a book like that, I will generally <laughs> skip to the end, right? So I actually read the epilogue in your author's note and oh. I couldn't put it down. I was like, wow, this is actually pretty stunning. So I'd love to hear you kind of explained it a little bit in that book. I'd love to hear you mm-hmm. tell everybody about how the book came about, how you went about writing it, and particularly... It seems like everybody wanted to talk, most people only on background, but Bill mm-hmm. Gross himself cooperated to a surprising degree. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about the genesis of of writing the book and what it was like.
1: Sure. So I started out uh covering Pimco in 2014 in April. And you know, I was a, a reporter at Bloomberg News. I was a beat reporter. This was my full-time job was covering asset managers, including Pimco. And you know, at the time I thought that. The fireworks were kind of in January when Muhammad Alarian left. And then there was this big, enormous Wall Street Journal article in the subsequent weeks and and Bloomberg too, and a couple others where, you know, the truth of why he left came out. And I was like, oh, kind of a bummer to be arriving in the aftermath. But of course, you know, more was brewing. And so I kind of was able to write this book in large part because I was already halfway in the door both from, you know, in part from having come from Bloomberg News and been covering credit. Um, I had been covering credit for years by that point. So I had kind of the language and understanding to be able to, I don't know, start talking to the people and, and demonstrate that I understood what, what they did. Um, but also because people were already talking to me about PIMCO. You know, I was already like building sources by the time Bill Gross was famously quit-fired in September 2014. So, you know, reporting on it was super gnarly and difficult and required a great deal of hand holding and coaxing and people who you know Pimco is famously litigious. So there's a there's a real obstacle there as a reporter. If I reached out to someone, you know, who's still at the firm, they would immediately send it to communications, right? They would send it to the HR to the um PR department. And I would just be like, oh, hi again. You know, they would the the PR guy would be like Mary, you've been trying to message people again. And I'm like, yes, it's my job. And, like, right. and I would get scolded and we would, you know, resume our interactions. But um, but just having that kind of uh, foot in the door from from knowing some of the things that were going on, it made it a lot easier when, you know, when th- big events like this happen, everybody clamp, clams up. Everybody kind of shuts up and, and doesn't want to be the person talking to you. So you really can only, again, get your foot in the door by... Having a sliver of information already by already right. knowing something. And sometimes that was just like, this, I'm going long. Is that, <laughs> I'm giving you a no, really long version here. No,
0: this is great. Cause this I mean, the two great. things that stood out to me were that one, it seems like once the dust settled and, and people had a little bit of distance from it, everybody wanted to get their thoughts in, at least on background. Right. And then I was stunned with Bill Gross's relationship himself with when I, the, the famous episode where I think he called a, a Reuters reporter yeah, and just started. Yeah, it was like, does he really not get how this works? Like, I'm stunned I at the know. number of people who don't seem to understand what on the record and off the record means, right? Was well, I an will, yeah.
1: The thing there is Bill knows. Like, that's the, the confusing story about... I mean, that, I think, actually, it's not confusing. It's more just indicative of his state of mind, right? Where he, better than a lot of people who are in the, you know, similar position, he understands the rules. He understands how media works. He's been doing this gig right. forever, you know? He he better than a lot of people, He's like a I've been trying to express I don't really know how to explain like why he's a better interviewee than a lot of, you know, comparable billionaires or comparable, you know, powerful CIOs. Mm-hmm. But he has this um this kind of understanding of the rules. But in that moment, he just, you know, he the the moment we're talking about he calls Jen O'Blan at Reuters. He's pulled over on the side of the highway and he just starts talking about like oh, you know, Muhammad Alarian wrote that Wall Street Journal article, which of course he did not. And, you know, he's got you wrapped around his little finger and just kind of going off about how Muhammad was getting the better treatment in the press. And his story was getting the, you know, the, the his story was the one in, in the mainstream. And Bill felt like he wasn't, you know, he was kind of getting short shaft. So uh, what is the saying? Short straw, short stick. Right, right, right. <laughs> Sorry for the edit there. Um so, so Bill felt like he wasn't getting the same audience. And so he calls Jan Oblon and says all this like kind of, you know, bananas stuff. And
0: that he had agreed oh, not right. to talk about, right? Right. I mean, that exactly. was I exactly mean, like he, they, yeah. they had an agreement between them in the separation. <laughs> and he just kind of threw it out the window because he was and
1: he, right, frustrated he was or, or lost his
0: temper. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So you see, you can see just how upset he is in that moment because it's not how he would normally act.
0: So do you think this goes back to, so I mean, one of the things that really jumped out to me in the book was the two kind of, I think they're true, maybe they were apocryphal comments about what it was like to interview at PIMCO. So Ben Trotsky, one of the high yield executives there used to say that the new hire interview should be two questions. One was, were you abused as a child? And two was, did you like it? Which is just like an unbelievable thing on its own. And then Bill Gross's actual interview question, apparently, which I thought was, less shocking, but more thought provoking was, which would you like to have the most money, power or fame? And that most people always said money or power, but that he was obsessed with fame from the beginning. My motivation was always to be famous. So do you Mm -hmm. think that like, one, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And two, do you think that part of this downfall, I'm kind of skipping to the end here, but when the meltdown happened, do you think (laughs) it was because he realized that the fame wasn't as useful as he thought it was, or that there was some other Psychological issue going on here, or as some people speculated, that he was just kind of losing it, or that he was always like this, and and power <laughs> and money kind of revealed his true inner self. Or what are your thoughts?
1: A lot of people do think that he was always like this, but a lot of people also speculated about the losing it. So I I can't possibly speak to that. I feel like I would need to have a lot more credentials to speak to that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, he has. You know, if you talk to people from like the olden days. They don't see that much difference in his behavior. It's it's mm-hmm. who he was surrounded with that different people, you know, acted differently around him or treated him differently. And to some extent, it's that like his peers had retired and had moved on, and he was kind of the guy left standing at that point. And I think that was hard for him, where you know, the old guard had kind of known how to work with him, known how to interact with him, and had had, you know, worked around him in a way where he's not the most like, you know, extroverted pleasant person in the universe. And that's fine. That's who he was. But I think there's also this weird thing that I keep thinking about, like, how do you know when you have power? Right? I think that, you know, after a while, all of the old guard had fallen away and everyone around him was smaller. And I think that was a dynamic that maybe he didn't notice or appreciate, That he was this bond king on a pedestal. He was this legend. And so, you know, in the 80s and 90s, if he didn't want to make eye contact with his peers, you know, the Chris Dialinuses and Ben Trotsky's and, and you know, Dave Eddington's of the world, they were more forgiving of it. Whereas I think, you know, they understood him and they had taken the time and had the ability to understand him. And then, you know, the treatment, the same treatment, the same behavior in the office, if there's some, you know, upstart 25-year-old who's like, hey, Bill, you know, like they're going to get a different, they're going to interpret it differently. And I think, I don't know, I, I think that's both like perhaps not appreciating how his power and his influence would have changed those dynamics. Mm -hmm. But also that's for sure, you know, we should say he's neurodivergent. He has gotten a late in life diagnosis as having Asperger's um, as as being on the spectrum. And I think that that's super relevant to a lot of the kind of interpretation of his behaviors. Like, you know, there's a little bit of a difference of opinion. I think he doesn't think that he was a jerk. I think that he thinks that he didn't want to interact with people the way they wanted to be interacted with.
0: Right. Yeah. He wrote some very self introspective things in some of those uh, investment outlooks, right? Like basically, right. am I really a jerk kind of thing? And and it was kind of soul wrenching, I guess, in in some yeah. way. But I mean, to the point about the people who interacted with him previously and, you know, the, the turnover was reasonably high amongst other people, right? I mean, he had a long, long tenure there, but I think it was difficult to keep people around him at the leadership level. So, I mean, if you had asked me, even before this it would have just seemed impossible that there could be any sort of orderly succession plan here right. i mean it's it's hard enough at any firm i think if you sure. look at any big company uh particularly a founder led company but especially especially in the investment world the base rate of successful succession plans is close to zero. Right. Right, Like, can you
1: think of one? I think there's one firm in Texas that did a good job.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's very, very few. Right. I mean, in the the hedge fund investing bond market kind of world, like, yeah, I struggle to think of any that really, really pulled it off. I mean, particularly with such a dynamic, you know, face of the firm kind of thing. So do you think they were ignorant to that or they just didn't care and just kept trying to force a square peg into a round hole?
1: I mean, what else can you do? You know, like you're supposed to have a transition plan, like a succession plan, and everyone is mortal. Like you have to do it. Bill's not going to be, you know, he can't, he couldn't have led PIMCO forever. He couldn't have been, you know, at a certain point, you have to come up with a plan and you just have to try it. There's, there's just no world in which everyone stays forever. And Bill knew that. I think you know he wanted to try to come up with a plan. It's just that they always were never on the same page, and right. every time he seemed to be able to put forward a plan, it was like the plan that they just had decided wouldn't work. You know, mm-hmm. um, so to some extent, I think it's impossible, but also mandatory, and that's yeah. why you end up with all these firms that that can't do it, that struggle with it.
0: Right. This is actually a little bit of an aside, but there's actually a very good history in the book. I thought of the financial crisis, the kind of 2000. 2000- Mid two thousands through two thousand nine two thousand ten period, which I thought was really, really good because it's rarely covered. I think as much from the bond market side as it probably should mm-hmm. be. You know, the the broker dealers get attention, and them. yeah, and yeah, and the, and the <laughs> equity markets get attention. But it was a bond market problem as well, or even yeah. primarily. Um, yeah. Do you think PIMCO's involvement? And it was at the same time as a lot of other firms, right? I mean, BlackRock, notably, and and others. But do you think their involvement in the process and in D.C. was a net good thing for the markets and for the country? Or was it kind of a regulatory capture kind of situation, as the critics might Alleg. Oh
1: gosh, it's hard because I feel like the system that we've set up, and I don't know of a better one. So, like, forgive me. The right. system necessarily intertwines the two, right? Intertwines markets and government, and that's a, that's a. There's always going to be some intersection, right? I don't know of a free market anywhere. So I think that some of it's just going to it's just a baseline you know we've we we've chosen in this country and in i think every country to engage with markets in some way or another and i do think it's troubling the extent to which we you know i think at the time there was this idea that oh they're helping us you know someone needs to value these securities and they know how and that's good and, and we need experts and certainly we've seen a turn away from experts for better or worse but it's also like the regulatory capture thing, I think, has really stuck in people's minds, maybe not in that phrasing, but right. the idea that, oh, you know, it's rigged and these these relationships are, you know, the, the people in government are just waiting to go through the revolving door and get a really cushy gig, making a bajillion dollars at these firms that they're now pretending to regulate. Like, that's so problematic
0: mm-hmm. and
1: just feeds the mistrust of all of the systems that we have. So. I, uh, your, your question's funny. Cause it was like, is it good for the markets? Is it good for society? And those are two distinctly different things. And I think the answers well, are different, you know?
0: In a narrow sense, they are, they're totally different, but in a broader sense, I think this is why you've seen such a breakdown in trust and Absolutely. in an indirect way, ra- in an indirect way, you know, we had Spencer Jacob on a, a few weeks ago about the meme stock yeah. stuff and, yeah. and about how like, it's just unthinkable that people could rise up in this way to take on quote, take on the man when it's really. Know, right? it, but this is where we've gotten to is I think if if a layperson were to read this book, somebody who had no experience in the bond markets, I think the things that would stick were that sort of episode, along with just the cultural dysfunction and the personality extremes that were going on in the inside the company. And so, yeah. you know, I think it, it, it really does generate a lot of attention when people see that this big, powerful billionaire is kind of pulling strings behind the scenes, it it just raises the question, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think like, you know, you're talking about these big personalities. And one of the things that struck me, I don't know if this was naive, maybe it was, but I feel like I thought that grownups were a little bit more grown up. And I think Mm -hmm. I thought that like, like we, I expected our systems at least to be better than ourselves. And that in retrospect, I think was naive. But like both that the people, uh, you know, that this book concentrates on acted in kind of petty and childish ways, you know, we pay them a lot of money to like keep it together and to, you know, shoulder that mantle of fiduciary duty and this enormous responsibility of like our financial futures. And, you know, in the the future sense, not in the uh, derivative contract sense. But I feel like it's a... that was disappointing i think um and and you know i started out writing this in my 20s so so part of that is just like regular regular disillusionment <laughs> but i uh, i don't know it it seemed like we've entrusted such important things and we're giving them over to you know people that aren't better than us
0: yeah no, it, it is. I mean, everybody, I think, has that moment where they realize that their parents are imperfect or, you know, <laughs> right, that, right. The, that the, the billionaire down the street maybe has a lot of the same flaws that we do. And I think that's a lot of the things that will also stand out from the book. I mean, a couple of things that I wrote down that jumped out were Neil Kashkari, who had a very prominent role mm-hmm. in D.C. and then came over to PIMCO for a few years, was notable for saying thank you when yeah. a lower level person in the organization held a door open for him and the immediate reaction from other people was that this guy will never make it here. And yeah. there was there, there were other anecdotes that grown men were brought to tears mm-hmm. in front of Bill Gross and the investment committee. I mean first of all, those are kind of astounding anecdotes and I, I'd love your thoughts on them. And secondarily, was there anybody who took the other side and was like, oh it really wasn't that bad. there was like some isolated horrible cool. behavior, but the place wasn't really that terrible.
1: I mean, yes, I think if you're in a different department, like if you're not on the trade floor, you could have had a more lovely experience. Um, So I do think there was some subjectivity or like if you worked with Jim Muzzy and client services and you were somehow insulated, I don't, I mean, people tell me that everyone's tolerance is different too. I should note, like after the book came out, someone emailed me and he was like, I really take umbrage with your characterization that, you know, it was a jerky place and that everyone was so mean and that we were like so intense on the floor. And the email like went on, and then at the end, the guy's like, "Yeah." And like, people came in from Goldman, and we chewed them up and spat them out, or whatever. And I'm like, "I think mm. we're saying the same thing. Like, I right. think, I think I said what you said, and you said what I said, but you liked it, and I wouldn't. <laughs> like, right? And that's fine. That's what makes a market. I didn't work at Pimco, and it's great. So right. I think, like, yeah, the crying um, and the the lack of yeah kindness. I think. Maybe to some extent too. That's reflective of an old approach to how we conduct business, and maybe we're renegotiating that right now. I don't know to what extent that's reached Newport Beach. Um, I'm kind of curious to find out what happens. You know, if there if there is kind of a if the reckoning of you know what we show up to with uh, at work and and how we what we expect from our employers uh, and our coworkers. I don't know how different things are, but I do think this like Solomon Brothers approach is not inclusive, <laughs> like right. no, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, and that's... so damaging, you know? I I mean, no offense to old Solly guys, but it seems like it was deleterious to mental health. And I think we take that more seriously now.
0: Yeah, I would think we probably do. I mean, and it'd be interesting, right? If you go read some of the anecdotes from Liar's Poker, right? Which mm-hmm. was written, what, 30 plus, 35 yeah. years ago versus some yep. of these anecdotes which took place... 10 to 20 years later, maybe. And there's probably a little bit of positive evolution, but there's still a long way to go where a lot of this stuff, it would be hard to imagine a big reputable firm like PIMCO getting away with it for the next 10 years. Right. Right. I don't
1: know. Completely agree. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it it goes to some of the feedback that you got. Um, You posted something on Twitter, which I thought was fantastic. And it was kind of, I guess, unsolicited feedback from someone who said that, uh, He or she really applauds the time and effort and the journalistic excellence that you put into the book, which I think is beyond doubt for anyone who reads it, but the person thought that the book was uh, a waste of time because it revealed how self-centered, misogynistic, selfish, and despicable people can be. (laughs) I I hope your next book is a positive one. And, you know, I guess my response to that was, that's true. Like, I can totally see, again, how someone would read this and just become even more entrenched, anti-Wall Street, you know, billionaires are evil, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, this was a, a story worth telling, in my opinion, if you have any interest in how the world functions. Because again, yeah. the bond market is a huge thing and it's an important thing. And whether you like right. to acknowledge it or not, you were all, every human, every citizen of the United States, at least, is impacted by this market. Right. And, right. and it matters. Right. Thank you. Exactly.
1: So, exactly. And I feel like, like, I get it. You... You know, if you're turning away from like the news and you read a book, and you're hoping to escape in some way, like this is not the book for you. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. This is not Harry Potter, and like no. I can't tell you like this. Yeah, I, I didn't. I I thought this was funny and like kind in some way. You know, he obviously was, you know, it's nice to get the, the accolades about the journalism being good. Thank you. And I get it. Like, yeah, you read a depressing book that's like, just leaves you kind of feeling dirty and, and and I don't know, unsettled. But you're right. Like, if you want to know the world that we're in, you have to understand these systems. And that's what we do at Planet Money too, right? We like want to explain the systems, like these things that are made up of us and and going on and influencing everything around us that are difficult and complicated. And like, if you don't have that bridge to understand what's actually going on. I don't know, like I don't want to be just reading Harry Potter and or whatever, you know, nice happy fairy tales because I need to know what's actually affecting me. Maybe it's my retirement account, but maybe it's the entire governmental, you know, organizational like decisions that we I don't know. I think that you're right. This this affects everyone in the United States and and outside. And yeah. it's so crucially essential foundationally, I, I can't overstate how important it is to to try to understand these systems and to try to be a participant and like weigh in on what's going on and what's affecting you.
0: Yeah, so I, that's why I thought the criticism was a little bit unfounded because of that, and I, I also thought that look, if you wanted to exploit this, which I, which is frankly what I thought you were going to do under false ah. pretenses when I picked it up, because <laughs> this could have been like a 300-page, yeah, it could have been like a 300-page New York Post article, right? Like you know, there, there was, was a lot so of material. much, yeah, so much ludicrous behavior that barely got a sentence or two or was omitted. Like I mean, the behavior in his. Divorced from his his ex-wife, the behavior with the neighbors and the sculpture next door, and like all the little nitpicks, you, you know, you could have done a, along the way with the people inside the firm. I mean, you, you painted the picture, but you didn't harp on it. So I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I thought, thank you.
1: <laughs> I thought it
0: I thought it was reasonable, but.
1: It was, it, it was a lot. I mean, initially, so I think a lot of people were nervous about this book. I know a lot of people were nervous about this book. Oh, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. And
1: and I got a lot of feedback right when it came out. You know, they all kind of like work stopped for a minute, and everyone read it. And, and, you know, people started texting me and, and emailing me their opinions. And a lot of the feedback was like, well, huh, that was just a list of facts, huh? Like, I think a lot of people thought the same thing that I would like go like go absolutely ham on it and just like right. say all the mean stuff and like, I don't know, like do curly cues about it or something. And, and I didn't have to, like the material was, there was just so much to work with in a good way and a bad way. You know, like it's, it's not really my, um, it's not my choice. I mean, there's a curatorial element to it. I do get to pick what to include, but Mm -hmm. at first, you know, the divorce, I was like, Oh, that's not really appropriate to include. You know, it's, it's his personal life. I'm not trying to mess with that, but it started to become part of his, you know, public-facing persona, it started to become part of, like, his Wikipedia entry. And it Mm -hmm. became, like, journalistic, you know, malpractice to not include that. And then the Mm -hmm. same is also true of the dispute with his neighbor that's just, you know, reached kind of astounding lengths. And I think that, you know... Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not offended at all by the fact that it's a list of facts. Like that's great. I think you can, right. if you want to go do your own diligence, if you think that, you know, maybe I oversold something, like go read it for yourself, you know, go go look at the underlying material. A lot of it's public. Um, it is it, it was a, a lot. And yeah. I think, you know, I appreciate you saying that because it is, I, I tried to be as as fair as humanly possible and and include what I needed to include, but not hurt anybody, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I frankly was very surprised that there wasn't more biographical detail because it's called mm. the books about the Bond King, right? It's not about yeah. Pimco per se, even though it obviously is. It's about one person. And there really was relatively little about
1: I know, his background sorry. and his childhood.
0: <laughs> no, look, I mean, it's it's entirely your choice. But I mean, I don't think yeah. anybody could, uh, could fairly criticize you for being overly personal because there's relatively little, compared to the material that's out there, relatively little personal yeah. biographical detail relative to you know, just a good in-depth coverage of, you know, the way the markets have evolved and developed and and yeah. the markets are structured and the way things happen. So.
1: I think part of that, I mean, that is like an aesthetic choice to an extent where I just like never really care if someone's like, I mean, he's from Ohio. He wrote about the babbling creek in his backyard. Right. Like, but right. much beyond that, I'm like, oh, okay. Like he played basketball. Okay. Like, I just don't need to know that. And I find yeah. like a lot of the biographies that spend a ton of time in there. I'm like, oh, he like had a friend. Okay. Like, and, and yeah. then what, like, I just, so that's a personal bias that I um, get impatient, but.
0: <laughs> he played blackjack, right? Just like every yeah. other, you know, know ambitious right? Wall Streeter <laughs> in the seventies, right? It's not, I know, that, I know. not that unusual. I mean, he's, he's not Ed Thorpe <laughs> or something, so it wasn't he's that relevant. With Ed Thorpe. Yeah. No, he's, I know. I'm In I saw the mold that, yeah. of
1: Ed Thorpe. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Thorpe yeah. is so great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I felt the same way. Like I, at one point I was like, is he really going to blame this all on his parents? Cause he talked about his, you know chilly relationship with his mother or something, but yeah, that's the <laughs> kind of Don't we all blame it all stuff. on our parents? Yeah, exactly. I mean. <laughs> that's where I just don't find much credibility in it. But one thing I want to jump to before we run out of time, which I thought was really the crux of kind of the conclusion of the book and that you covered in in good depth in an article called, Was the Bond King Great? That you wrote an institutional investor. It's dated May 6th of 2020. So just last week. And you give it the- Sorry, 2022, <laughs> last week. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're recording this the following week of in May of 2022. Um, and you go into this kind of long, in-depth treatment of whether it was luck or skill, which, of course, mm-hmm. is the crux of any evaluation of any active manager. And I think from my perspective, it's without doubt that he deserves a good dose of credit for being innovative. And mm-hmm. we could have a secondary debate as to whether innovators and in markets really get too much credit or too much reward. I think that's probably true, but you know, look, it, it is what it is. I'm, I'm not going to quibble yes, with I that. But weigh even, in
1: on the reward of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean, like there's a societal question of like, is it, is it a good system if you reward somebody with that level of money for something that was probably to a degree inevitable? (laughs) He just got there first or slightly better. Seems like a
1: weird allocation and maybe not an efficient one. I'm sorry to suggest it. Go on.
0: No, I I totally agree. Yeah. So, but it was interesting because in the book, you quote him, and I believe it was from an investment outlook that he wrote himself, but he said, Mm -hmm. all of us, even the old guys like Buffett and Soros, yeah, we too. We've all cut our teeth during perhaps a most advantageous period of time, the most attractive epoch that an investor could ever experience. You simply, and you wrote then, simply taking risk had made money. And so you kind of addressed that then in this article that you wrote recently, where I thought, I'd love to hear you kind of summarize it, then I'll push back on what I thought were two good Uh points and two points where I thought he was a little bit
1: wrong. All right, let's go. So, the I article, the II I article, basically looked at this 2019 study. I mean, I I basically say that you know I talked to sources. I heard from people who were like, "No, I traded alongside him in his markets, and I saw what a, an amazing trader he is. He truly is a great." And I talked to people who, you know, have followed, like anecdotally have followed and, and have, you know, seen him, you know, over decades identifying these structural factors that he thought would yield uh, better performance and indeed did. And then I came across this 2019 study by these two researchers was kind of a, you know, came across, everyone was talking about it. Um, and it basically um, identified three of the main factors that Bill Gross was using. And it made a sort of synthetic portfolio using those factors and added a little bit extra for the direction of interest rates and then um, compared that against his actual returns. And indeed, those three factors, that little kind of fake portfolio, synthetic portfolio, accounted for 89% of Gross's returns, uh, out, like outperformance over the over the market. And so that's pretty good, right? And then there's like a little extra that um, that they would call alpha. And I think that this is instructive in a few ways. Now, there's this debate as to whether or not that's like... I've heard exotic beta or alpha those factors and I personally think it's I I'm sure I'm missing something in the debate but I think it's very silly to like to say that identifying those factors however many decades ago was somehow not an insight you know to me that feels this is like one of the debates in quant investing that like oh does this actually count as alpha to me it does um i know everyone's wondering my opinion i'm i'm a, a world renowned researcher but i will say in my view you know this this doesn't detract from his legacy these identifying these inefficiencies these these ways in which he could exploit you know how much other people perceived risk, how much other people needed to buy insurance so they could sleep at night and he didn't mind not sleeping, how much people overestimate the volatility or potential risk in a longer duration, in a longer, you know, tenor. So all of these things um, Then I think, you know, seeing those and seeing them early absolutely counts as an insight, absolutely makes him, you know, a great investor. And it's those... Structural, replicable, persistent, robust factors that to me make a lot more sense than the, oh, I think tomorrow the Fed's going to do X, Y, Z because I'm psychic. Like, I just don't, you know, I've been covering this for a long time and I've had a lot of experiences where people want to like shake me and say, I think this is going to happen, write a story about it. And I'm like, okay, man, like you have a thought and you think that's the story. Like, I don't even, like, even if it's a robust investment analysis, you know, there's like a good justification, like, you didn't predict a war in Russia. You didn't predict, you know, wait, it's not in Russia. You didn't predict the war in Ukraine. You didn't, there are things that happen in the world that are not on your models. And I just, I feel like those, those are a lot less fun for me to think about. The structural things that, that Bill Gross said, you know, said underpin all of the total return investing that he'd been doing for decades. That stuff makes great sense to me. And that stuff seems to me to be really a true insight. Was that a good summation?
0: No, very good summation. Yeah. So, um, what I would say that, that stood out to me was uh, a couple of things. So in the article you talked about his keys to the kingdom mm-hmm. and to me, the one that stands so that the, in order, they are selling volatility uh, having a little bit more exposure and mortgage securities and, and derivatives mm-hmm. holding cash equivalents instead of cash. Uh, mm-hmm. You said that one source told you that someone pulled him aside and said, there's only four things you need to know going long duration, rolling down the curve. So in, taking advantage of a price a bond's price rising as it gets a little closer to maturity going long credit and going short volatility again so i picking those one by one i would say i agree pretty much with everything you said but i think one big thing stands out to me, which is that you're kind of compounding your risks there by going long Uh duration and short volatility. And so even this study that uh, was originally out of AQR or some of the folks at AQR where they tried to highlight what Buffett did, which again, I think that paper mostly got it right because it pretty well aligns with what Buffett himself would say, which is that he's trying to find good quality businesses that mm-hmm. are going to last. So he wants equity duration on his side. Yeah. And that's a very different thing than in the bond market concept of duration. So right. the paper itself has one big caveat, as you pointed out, which is that these strategies seem to only work in markets that were going up. And if you look at history, anyone who's shorted volatility or sold options of any kind, which is different than owning you know, the implicit options in mortgage securities. But anyone who's shorted volatility and taken these kind of compounded risks, like LTCM, for example, right, which was Mm -hmm. very similar in a lot of ways to Blue Gross. I mean, they were extremely bright. They knew what they were doing. They were very focused and nimble traders. And they were quite good at structuring their trades. I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. another very good point that you made in the article, which is that you can come up with a great idea, But that's only part of it. You also have to be able to communicate it and structure it. And there's no doubt that PIMCO was very good at communicating and structuring it. But I I just have to wonder that if we had seen, like you you saw the the basic failure that that he experienced in the temper tantrum or the taper tantrum uh, about 10 years ago, and look at what's happening this first quarter or first four or five months of 2022, which is awesome that it coincides with your book coming out. I know, right?
1: I didn't mean to do that.
0: Yeah, right. That's just amazing uh, timing on your part. But you, you'd have to imagine that this strategy would be getting killed right now, right?
1: I mean, yeah. And I will know that there's a big difference between the LTCM and Bill Gross, and that's that Bill Gross never blew up, right? He avoided ruin. So there is He, he did. I mean, Underlying. Because he wasn't
0: as leveraged, right? I mean,
1: yes, but that's a real thing. I mean, it is say, for like, sure like, the structuring like little, part. Yeah, the structuring, part. No, no. and that's what's critical. So, like, yes, these, and and there is some evidence in the 2019 study that he seemed to lean in a little wrong. He seemed to get the, you know, he didn't take duration risk right when he should have. He did. He, in fact, they found a little bit of evidence to the contrary. So, right, it's possible I'm wrong here. It's possible that I'm, I'm, you know, overstating things or, or, or you know, rose glasses uh, a little bit here. But I think that like it is he avoided ruin. This is a fundamental thing of his risk management strategy of what he learned at Vegas, card, uh, card counting and, and you know, kind of adhering to the Kelly criterion of, you know, knowing mm-hmm. when you have the odds in your favor and leaning in only then. And I think, you know, there are there are certainly years where he didn't do that. And, you know, his tenure at Janus is, is certainly one of those. His, you know, 2011 treasury call seems to be one of those. There are moments where he seems to have Deviated from his risk management. But that structuring point, I mean, to some extent, they were limited in how risky they could be just by virtue of the like mutual fund wrapper. But I do think, you know, a lot of the heroes of the financial crisis, people who saw it and traded it right, a lot of those trades were bananas. A lot of those trades were terrifying. Like, everyone's like, oh, Michael Burry is this big hero who stopped talking to his investors. (laughs) <laughs> like, like, that's the, all of the... the it's a totally of, different
0: thing. Yeah. It's a
1: totally different thing. And the way yeah. that they were structured, I would say a lot of these, you know, ones that we talk about in the big, short, and otherwise are a lot riskier in a way that, I don't know, is it, was it an informed risk? Did they know that the timing was going to work out exactly the way that it did? Or were they lucky? So I think, you know, the fact that PIMCO's crisis trade was ramped down on risk and then be able to scoop things up in the aftermath, that's so much safer sounding to me. Like it's the avoid ruin part that to me is 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 the counter to your. It, it was just you know this this what this was actually truly luck, right? You know th- that it was skill within luck. I think yes, but the avoid ruin part did um, come up and does kind of mitigate that um, because there were blips along the way. Did he trade them all of them perfectly? No, absolutely not. But I do think that you know it's it is a critical difference that that the, he. Avoided, you know. There, even in 2011, I don't think he lost money. Like that no, was a he spectacularly just yeah, yeah. wrong right. call, and he just right. lagged.
0: He just lagged. So that would he be my point. That would be my point was that you're 100 percent correct that avoiding ruin is jobs one, two, and three, and he did a great job there. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean to compare LTCM in the oh, sense. Oh no, no, of no!
1: You just gave me an opener. Like don't worry, a total blow up. My
0: <laughs> my point was that the idea of skill and IQ and trading prowess is insufficient, right? Because it's, not enough, it's not enough to have that to avoid blowing up. And my, my ultimate counter to this would be that even he himself said in 2013, in April 2013, you quote this right at the beginning, he looked in the proverbial mirror and asked himself, am I a great investor? And this was in his public note. And he said, no, not yet. And that was because he felt, he himself felt that he and his peers were untested. And I would argue that the current period, like literally the last six months would be one of those tests that he never got to quite experience. And that if you were using this same framework and let's give him full credit, maybe what happened in COVID would have caused him to change his, Mm-hmm. strategy, right? Maybe he would have said it no longer makes sense to sell volatility because this is just so crazy. And, and yeah,
1: yeah.
0: somebody that smart and that nimble very well could have made that calculation and that and that change, that tactical shift. But we do, we just don't know. And so my point would be that if he had kept that same keys to the kingdom approach, right, where in my, and I don't think the factors that they, they sussed out in that study attributed, uh, Causation among everything. the three, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I would I would guess that being long duration and short volatility was probably the lion's share of the outperformance,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that he would have given back a lot of that outperformance just in the last six months, right? I mean, I, yeah. I think the last six months would have not necessarily blown anything up; it wouldn't have gone to zero or required required a big bailout like LTCM, but it may have well blown a giant hole in the track record, right?
1: I think that's probably right, and you know it is. Like you're, I'm kind of sad now that you're saying this. Like, like we'll never know. We'll never. Try You'll never know. No. no,
0: exactly. You <laughs> never have. a parallel I universe. thought I had an answer. Yeah. I was
1: so happy. Uh, no, I think I think you're right. Like it is, it is a new period, and I did kind of wonder. You know, I put this to a lot of people who who know his strategies well, who worked with him or observed him very closely. You know, the period after 2013. I had this sense that it was kind of, and I wrote this in the book, and then like realized that I, I was like, oh, you know, the the rally, the the bull market for bonds was over as of 2013, and people were like, Mary, mm. rates are lower, girl, like, right, right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's true, that's true, but like from the day that Bill took over the Janus Fund to the day he announced his retirement, the tenure went up you know, the, the yield on the 10 year bond. went 2.43 to
0: 2.73 is your, yeah. your points so, out. Yeah. So
1: like, you're right. Like that it's a little instructive because his track record, he did not replicate it at Janus. He did not manage to outperform at Janus and it was in a rising rate environment for his experience. So it's like, is that sufficient evidence to undermine all of the decades that came before? Maybe. Probably yeah. not. I don't know. Like I would, I would land on probably not, but you're right that it is kind of like, well, it's not, not evidence.
0: So And that's where I find like a simple factor analysis to be just oversimplified in a lot of ways, because if you really want to compare a long multi-decade track record, like to what. Buffett's done at Berkshire. Every 10 years or so, he completely shifted tactics. The principles never changed, but the tactics Mm -hmm. definitely changed, right? Both Mm -hmm. out of necessity by the size of the company and the size of the capital base that he was deploying and based on the market opportunities that were presented to him. And so that's what I think is also so fascinating about this, you know, counterfactual will never have an answer to is because we just don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, maybe he would have been smart enough to realize like, wait a minute, with Excess liquidity flooding the market for years on end and all these earthquakes building underneath the surface and rates right. completely pinned to the floor. There's no prudent way to sell volatility anymore. This is just crazy. Like I'm picking yeah. up pennies in front of a steamroller steam and I have to right. get out of the way. Right. So,
1: and that maybe, I, I mean, there are, I, I think about like the the cash and cash equivalent exploitation where you have yeah, just short dated, you know, corporate floaters or whatever. And Mm -hmm. it's funny because there was this like debate at one time, you know, there's always like a line as to what can count for a cash equivalent and it's a bit subjective. And at times they were like, I don't know, is this Russian floater cash equivalent? And like, I think they got a bit cut out in the whole, you know, war thing. And I think that that is, you know, sometimes that, you know, if you're buying Campbell's soup allegedly, you know, I, I was told Paul McCulley could never get enough of Campbell's suit short dated notes, like give them to mm. Paul and, yeah. you know, for the cash management desk. And it's like that, that makes sense. Like that probably was, would still work. You're going to get a bit no- of notice before Campbell's soup, you know, files. That's not always true, but it's almost always true. So I feel like there's some that would still work, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be selling ball in March, 2020.
0: No, no. right. Or, or, December of 2021, right? For I mean, today. it would be, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just been horrendous. I mean, it's been probably the worst four or five month stretch in the bond year in the bond market in my lifetime, and uh, yeah. I, I think unequivocally. I and think yeah, I mean, right. the, yeah, the cash equivalent thing is a fascinating example of it, right? Because it's something that Berkshire famously avoids, right? I mean, they use treasury bills. That's it, yeah. right? I mean, he has absolutely no interest in even. A rated commercial paper because <laughs> GE was, you know, a big supplier right. of highly rated commercial paper until the financial crisis rolled around and everybody realized that GE Capital was right. not what they thought it was. And it's just that was not long worth the it. most
1: liquid credit default swap. Yeah. Correct. Return. Yeah. It's, yeah. It,
0: in that construct, it's not worth taking the extra risk for an, an infinitesimal little bit of return. And so that's where it's so fascinating because he was so good at picking up these little basis points here and there. Right.
1: And that is skill. And not blowing up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, there's a lot of skill involved in it. I just, you know, to be definitive about
1: It's impossible.
0: Yeah. It is impossible. It's it's a bit of a game that we're
1: playing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: It's arbitrary at one point. But I look, I would highly, highly encourage everybody to check out that article from last week because no matter where you are in... In the investing business, this is a debate that is endlessly fascinating and that you should be thinking about, and I would highly encourage everybody to pick up the book for the financial history and the thought-provoking nature of where markets have been and where they're going, and as well for the jaw-dropping, you know, details that that come along the way. So, congratulations on the on the book thank again. You. I thought it was great. So, thank and thank you. I, I know we're up that. against time, so thank you again for joining us, and uh, we'll look again to have you back me. on the future. All right, thanks I love again. That.
1: Take care. Right. Thank you.